Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about First and Second Thessalonians. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians is often regarded as the earliest document in the New Testament. A lot of scholars look at this as being written around the year 50 in the Common Era, or 50 AD, and the vast majority of biblical scholars agree that 1 Thessalonians was a genuine letter of Paul. This authentic letter of Paul holds significant historical value. According to the account in Acts, if we go back and remember, in the book of Acts, Paul goes on a mission to Europe when he gets a vision of a guy in Macedonia. The guy implores him to come and provide assistance. That's back in Acts chapter 16. When Paul responds to this call, he travels to Philippi, and then he goes to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, Paul engages with both Jews and Greeks who were drawn to the teachings of the Jewish scriptures. But when he's there, there's a ton of opposition and there's eventually riots. And so Paul has to get out of there and he goes down to Athens and then to Corinth. That's in Acts chapter 17, right about in the first 15 verses. So this sequence of events as described in Acts chapter 16 and 17 provides for us the contextual backdrop to the letter that Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians. From this letter that he writes, we learn that he was in Athens, and when he was there, he sends his missionary companion, Timothy, to go back to Thessalonica. That's a journey of about 300 miles, and he sends him there to kind of check out how it's going in the church. Now, that might have taken a couple weeks to get there, and he would have got there, and then he would have had to walk all the way back to Athens to bring his report. And so we know that he does. He comes all the way back to Athens or Corinth, depending on where Paul is. We're not sure if he's in Athens or Corinth, but he walks all the way back down, and then Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians, and that letter is his response to them based on Timothy's report. So that's kind of the backdrop to what's happening here in First Thessalonians. In this letter... Paul expresses his love and affection for the saints in Thessalonica. He calls them his brothers and sisters, and he is going to address five main topics in this letter that we'll get to when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, as I read Thessalonians, there's two major themes that I focus on. Theme number one is how to be a true minister. I like that heading in chapter two. In the chapter heading, it says, true ministers preach in a godly manner. And I like that title, true minister, shepherd, a true teacher. Whatever you're calling in the church, you have souls that you need to oversee. There are people that you need to shepherd. And how to do that the Lord's way is a major theme of the first epistle to the Thessalonians. So I want to start with how not to do it. What are the things I need to avoid? And I want to focus on the things that we have a tendency to do wrong 
here are the things where members of the church, in our zeal to do a good job, sometimes go astray. So I'm going to start in chapter 2. Now, come back to chapter 1 in just a minute. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says how not to minister. Beginning in verse 3, our exhortation was not of deceit, nor uncleanness, nor in guile. Then in verse 4, he's going to talk about not pleasing men. Verse 5, not using flattering words, not using a cloak of covetousness. And then in verse 6, not seeking glory. Let me deal with those kind of one at a time. I want to go back to verse 3. I think one of the most important things that we must not do is teach in uncleanness. You will never teach in power if you are deliberately not living the principles of the gospel that you're teaching. Now, I know that's different than we're all imperfect. Every one of us make mistakes. But if I just don't care, if I am teaching what I don't do on purpose, if I am a hypocrite, you will lack all power in your teachings. The Holy Ghost will not be a companion to you. I don't know that that's very common, but I just want to start with uncleanness. But the other two in verse 3, I think, unfortunately, are a little common in our teaching. Our exhortation was not of deceit or guile. Let me just use a couple modern quotations from our prophets, seers, and revelators to kind of point out what we sometimes do. The first one is from Dallin H. Oaks. In his book, The Lord's Way, he said the following, Even though what is being taught is the truth, it is not of God unless it is being taught in the Lord's way. The great truths of the gospel must not be presented in the wrong setting, given voice by unworthy persons, accompanied by the wrong kind of music, or in other ways cheapened by association with what is not conducive to the spirit by which gospel truths must be taught. I think that's the gist of what Paul's trying to say, is our exhortation wasn't cheapened by association with things that it should. Now, sometimes in my zeal to connect with youth, I so badly want them to like what I'm teaching I connect it with things I shouldn't connect gospel truths with that cheapens the gospel message, but serves as an attention getter. I am presenting through deceit and guile. I need to be careful that I teach in a way that is appropriate for the truths that are being taught. And I think that's when Paul says in verse 4, not as pleasing men. I think that's a concern that Paul is trying to address here. Another caution, another way that we can fall into the trap of teaching by deceit, as Paul warns, is to fake spirituality. Boyd K. Packer, in his marvelous talk, The Candle of the Lord, said the following, The spiritual part of us and the emotional part of us are so closely linked that it is possible to mistake an emotional impulse 
for something spiritual. We occasionally find people who receive what they assume to be spiritual promptings from God when those promptings are either centered in the emotions or are from the adversary. Now, sometimes that becomes a form of teaching by deceit. I have watched teachers want their students to feel the Spirit. I want them to have a spiritual experience. So what they do is they have an emotional experience. They deliberately get their students to cry. They appeal to their emotions, tell stories or show pictures or relate experiences that evoke my tender emotions disguised as a spiritual one. Or maybe they're not trying to fool, but that's just kind of how they understand it. I know that as we grow in the gospel, we kind of understand the spirit differently, especially as we teach. And so I think it's just good for Boy K. Packer, who has some wisdom, he has some mileage, as it were, as the old dog to sit down with the new pups and say, hey, you guys, yeah, just here's a word of caution. Just be aware of this and be careful and be wise. And but maybe, really, it is, it is emotional it's tricky, sometimes. It, it, it's tricky, and I know that you want to be a good teacher, and you want that class to have a spiritual experience, but be careful that you're not manipulating them. I wonder if that's what Paul meant by nor in guile. Now, I very much distinguish what Ammon said about catching Lamoni in guile. I think that was perhaps the idea of I used a strategy to get into a position to be able to teach the gospel. I don't take that word guile the same way Paul seems to be teaching it here in Thessalonians. But the idea is you don't need trickery. You don't need to play all these games. Again, I remind you that Joseph Smith used three P words wonderfully to describe the difference between what he was doing, what others in his day were doing. Some of the professors of religion were active in promoting this extraordinary scene of religious excitement. The gospel does not need to be promoted. It has its own convicting power. The Spirit will do the convicting. You don't need to promote it. The other thing Joseph Smith said they were doing was proving, that you were using the mind and trying to prove truth. You don't need to prove gospel truth. You just need to use the third P word that Joseph Smith says that he was going to do. He says, I shall present. He simply presented truth and the Spirit brought the conviction. Now, one more, verses 4 through 6, he kind of presents this idea of teaching to be pleasing unto man, to seek glory of the people we teach or of others. Elder Bednar cautioned kind of this idea. Elder Bednar said, We must be careful to remember that in our service, that we are conduits and channels. We are not the light. It is never about me, and it is never about you. In fact, anything you or I do as an instructor that knowingly and intentionally draws attention to self in the messages we present, in the methods we use, or in our personal demeanor, is a form of priestcraft that inhibits the teaching effectiveness of the Holy Ghost. 
that is a significant caution. If I'm teaching in a way, if the way I dress, if the, my methods, if my flashiness, if I'm teaching in a way that knowingly and intentional draws attention to me, is priestcraft. And it's going to affect the spirit being there. So there's kind of a list of the negatives I would invite you to avoid. Deceit, uncleanness, guile, seeking to please man, flattering words, cloak of covetousness, or seeking the glory. Now, let's turn our attention to the other list. How do we minister? How do we teach? How do we shepherd in an appropriate way that we're going to start with the goal? Let's go back to chapter 1. The goal is, in verse 5 of chapter 1, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Now, that word assurance is pretty loaded. And I think the idea here is that it is the power and the confirmation and the moving me forward that comes from the Holy Ghost. That's got to be the goal. If I teach in a way that the Holy Ghost assures and it's powerful, then jump to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 10, I'm going to perfect that which is lacking in their faith. If I teach with power, then the Holy Ghost will bring change. If I teach with assurance, also in chapter 3, verse 3, no man should be moved by these afflictions. I will help people be firm in challenge, in, in trial, in pain, in affliction. And that should be the end result. I love that chapter 2 is sandwiched between chapters 1 and 3, because chapter 1 says, teach so that there is power and assurance that comes from the Holy Ghost, so that in chapter 3, people change, that they are perfected in that which is lacking in their faith, and they don't move in the face of adversity. So, however we teach, now we're going to get into that list in chapter 2, but however we teach, we need to do it in such a way that it brings power and assurance from the Holy Ghost. It seems as if Paul is coupling that idea of the Holy Ghost with power. This is something that is put together in the Bible about 10 times, coupling the ideas of power and the Holy Ghost. In the Book of Mormon, power is linked with the Spirit of God over 50 times. So there's a high frequency going on here in the Book of Mormon and in the Bible. We also see this idea emphasized in the Doctrine and Covenants. It seems to me that the Lord is indicating that the Holy Ghost is associated with power. Now, the Greek for the word power here in verse 5 is dunamis. That's where we get the word dynamite, this idea of the ability to do something. But here it's translated as power or the power to do things. In my life, personally, I found one of the ways I recognize the Holy Ghost is my ability is increased or my courage or strength to do something that maybe previously was difficult 
is enhanced. And I think that is one of the manifestations of the Holy Ghost. And we see that in the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord emphasized so many times in the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants the importance of the Spirit, especially as he's trying to build this brand new fledgling church, the restored church of Jesus Christ on the earth. We put references in the show notes for you if you want to read those, but I think those are really important. Mike, can I share one from the Book of Mormon? As Moroni is writing the final chapters of the Book of Mormon, looking back on everything that his dad had included, I think Moroni is kind of filling in the gaps. What needed clarification? And in that sense, chapter 2 of Moroni is kind of clarifying something from Third Nephi. And he points out the difference between having hands laid upon your head, which gives us authority, and obtaining power. Those are not the same thing. In verse 1, he points out that Jesus laid his hands upon them. So they had authority. But then he said in verse 2, "'Ye shall call on the Father in my name in mighty prayer,' And after ye have done this, ye shall have power. Christ was giving them authority, but whether or not they had power was up to them. And so he was pleading with them to do what they needed to do to have power. I think you can have authority, but not have the Spirit with you. And I think that's the key. If the Spirit's with you, then you have that. Before we leave chapter one of First Thessalonians, I just want to mention an important verse because I really think this is the theme of not only First Thessalonians, but also Second Thessalonians. And the theme is the second coming. So if you go to First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine and ten, we read this. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So notice what Paul's saying. We are to wait for his Son from heaven. Paul's talking about the second coming, and then he says, whom he raised from the dead. So we're talking about Jesus, who's raised from the dead, is going to deliver us, the saints in Thessalonica, and Paul, and the early Christian church, from the wrath to come. My reading of 1 Thessalonians is that Paul has this expectation that Jesus is coming soon, and the people that live in the early Christian church, many of them will live to see it. We read this in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verses 15 through 17. We also read this in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31, and 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. So that's going to be my take as I read this, is that Paul has this expectation that Jesus is coming soon. Now we know that that didn't happen. We know as Latter-day Saints that the second coming is in the future. I'm okay with this because we're all mortals swimming in this mortal sea and we don't have all things in front of us. But knowing that their expectations were not correct should give modern Christians pause. We should pause and ask ourselves, how do we see prophecy? What about our patriarchal blessing? For example, a patriarchal blessing that promises numerous children and a long life can be interpreted many ways. 
Could the promise be that in the next life, some of these prophecies or promises would be fulfilled? I mean, if you remember the promises that God made to Abraham, he promised Abraham that he would basically get three things, property, a lot of property, posterity, and priesthood power. And yet... It took a long time for those blessings to come. Yeah. He didn't even have the land to bury his wife when she died. He had to negotiate for a piece of land in Hebron just to bury her. That's in Genesis 23. And yet Abraham pressed on in his faith. He knew that the promises of God were sure. He knew that they would happen. And yet the fulfillment of that expectation did not happen in his life. And so I'm okay with God giving a promise and the mortals that receive it not being able to see all things. And I'm okay with Paul being wrong. I'm okay with that because Paul is a mortal. He's seen the Savior. He's had revelation, but he does not know all things. So with that, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and talk about what are some appropriate ways to minister as the Savior would. So how do I teach? How do I minister? How do I shepherd so that I have that power and assurance from the Holy Ghost? This is our our good list. This is our how-to list, how to do it the Lord's way. I want to start in verse 4. As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. I want God to trust what I'm going to do in that classroom. But I think the other way to look at that is, I want to win the trust of the students I'm teaching. I love what Ammon did. When he chopped off the arms, he saw an opportunity to win their hearts. And when he did, he knew that they would then believe his words. When we win their hearts appropriately and properly, not through deceit, not through guile, not through trickery, not because we're, we're trying to win over them with flattering words and appealing thoughts, when we win their hearts, then they'll believe our words. We must be put in trust. Next on our list, verse 7, I love this one. We were gentle among you even as a nurse. He's going to say, you want to be a good teacher? Be like a nurse. In verse 11, he's going to say, be like a father. I love the analogies here, but I want to focus on this one. Be like a nurse that cherisheth her children. And so he kind of uses the analogy in verse 7, we're supposed to be like a mom. And then in verse 11, we're supposed to be like a dad to the people we shepherd and minister and teach in the gospel. When it comes to to nurse, as Paul's using it here, it seems to be that he's talking about a, a wet nurse to care for young children. And the most important trait that these nurses had was their gentleness. They often endeared themselves to these young children. And when the young children grew older, they had great concern and care for these nurses. The image Paul here is using could thus be one of a nursing mother, although all of Paul's hearers would have known of the custom of wet nurses as well. Now, regardless of how you view mothers or fathers today in our modern world, I think it's okay to to be in that space and just know that according to the way the households were run in the Roman Empire, 
the mothers were considered the more affectionate and the more gentle. And I think what Paul's trying to emphasize here is that those that serve Christ channel that inner gentleness, that they have those kinds of characteristics. Now, what's interesting is, and we, we don't have Paul with us to talk about it, but what's interesting is sometimes when I read Paul, he doesn't sound very gentle. I mean, when I read Galatians, I'm like, whoa, he's fired up. He just is. He's kind of fiery. But I think if we were with him, I think if we saw him and walked with him, we would see this. So perhaps he's fiery when he needs to be, but he's gentle with the saints. I think that's one way to read this. And I love that as an instruction on me to be a better member of the church in my calling, to be gentle as a nurse or that nursing mother figure. Going on in our list, verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you. I think that's a great critical list. If you want to teach better, if you want to minister better, we need to be affectionately desirous of the people we serve. I love that he says in verse 8, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. So when I teach, I not only pour out the gospel upon them, but I pour all those tender feelings of my soul upon them as well. I just care so deeply about you that when I teach, I want it to come across. I want to pour out my own soul upon you. And I think that comes through pleading with Heavenly Father. If you have a class that you're struggling to love, I would invite you to read Moroni chapter 7, verse 48, about pleading with the Father with all the energy of your soul to have this charity, to love them the way He loves them. Next on our list is in verse 9, laboring night and day, putting that effort on me because we would not be chargeable unto you. I'm not going to require that you pay me. I'm going to put in the work and the labor and the effort so that God pays me. I am preaching this gospel completely committed and completely desirous to put in all the work necessary. You don't owe me anything. I am doing this not for your applause, not for your gratitude, but for God's. I think that's probably coming out of their circumstance. When he's writing to the saints in Corinth, he's actually talking to them about the Thessalonian saints. We read this in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2, that Paul references the deep poverty of the saints that are in Macedonia. The Thessalonian saints are in Macedonia, and it seems to me that they have uh, poverty, that they're not as wealthy as the saints in Corinth. And they didn't share some of the Corinthians' objections to manual labor. Some of the saints in Corinth had this view, especially the wealthy ones, that if you worked with your hands, you were somehow less than. If you remember back in 2 Corinthians, one of the expectations that they had of Paul was that he had to be one who didn't work with his hands. It was kind of like beneath them, and it made them feel like he was less than. And Paul said, no, I'm going to work with my hands. And he kind of says that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, where he says, I'm working night and day. I'm not afraid of labor. And so he does set up shop. Remember, he was a tent maker or a leather worker. Perhaps he built awnings. He might have worked from morning till sunset to help pay for his missionary labors while he was preaching the gospel. And he would talk to people while he's working. And then at night, he would go and preach. Many Jewish teachers in Paul's day 
had a trade. They would work, but they would also teach. A manual laborer began working from sunrise and would talk with his visitors while he was working. Now, we do need to remember that the saints in Philippi are helping Paul. They are financially helping him. But Paul still had to labor, even though he was getting funds from the saints in Philippi. But to the saints in Thessalonica, he's basically saying, hey, I understand your circumstance. I'm not going to ask you for anything. And it doesn't say this here, but I think what he's hinting at in this chapter is it seems to me from my reading that other teachers that were using flattering words or they were seeking glory probably were getting paid. We don't have the whole story. We don't know who these guys were. It's not as clear as when we read some of the other letters, but there's another group of people that seem to me to be subverting Paul's message, and Paul is contrasting their message with his without getting too detailed, and he's trying to draw a line in the sand and say to these people, hey, don't listen to them. Listen to me. I'm different than them, and one of the differences is verse 9. I'm not asking you guys for any money. So he was willing to labor for his own support, but I also like looking at that a different way. He was not afraid to do the work necessary to bring the gospel to you. I think implied in that for a modern day teacher is, I will read and be prepared, and I, will, I won't just leave this to the last minute. My calling is important, and I'm not afraid to do the work necessary to be successful in it. Next on our list, verse 10 of chapter 2, ye are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves. In other words, act like Christ. Just act like Christ in your calling. Be above reproach. Live the gospel. Little things like in primary where we, we teach in pairs so that no adult is left alone with children. We need to act holily or justly or unblameably in our calling. Next on our list, verse 11, we exhort and comfort and charge like a father. I love that, that contrast, exhort and comfort. I love that Enos said that his father taught him in the language and also in the nurture and admonition. Nurture and admonition. Meaning sometimes we have to put our arms around them. And other times we have to help them change and repent because what they're doing is incorrect. My job is to teach you in a way that you change. But my job is also to comfort you. Now, that's a great list of chapter two. And as you read through, you'll make your own list about how to teach, how to minister, how to be what God wants me to be in my calling. Now, it extends in chapter three because this is where, you know, Paul sends Timothy because he was worried. He was worried about what's going on. And he sent Timothy to continue to teach. And so we pick up our list in chapter 3 in verse 2. The purpose of Timothy going was to establish them, build them up, so to speak, and comfort them so that no man should be moved by your afflictions. Again, on our list is I need to establish, I need to build up. Everything I do in my calling should build and never tear down. It should comfort and never cause pain. 
And we get kind of the context here in the third chapter where Paul basically says in verse one, hey, I'm in Athens, but I sent Timothy back to you. And then in verse six, he says, Timothy brought me the report, the good tidings of your faith. I love where he says in verse seven, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So their faith and their good action actually strengthened Paul, who was 300 miles away. If you're going through a trial and you're having faith, you don't even know the people that you're affecting. And in this sense, Paul is clearly being blessed by their faithfulness. And he longs to be with them. He says that, I wish I could be there. I wish I could come and and enjoy your faces. And then we get to that culminating statement that we've talked about in verse 10, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And there's that goal of good teaching, is to help people change the areas in their life that need to be changed. Now Paul shifts in chapter 4 is where Paul begins his list of the things you, meaning you Thessalonian saints, need to do. Here's why I'm writing to you. Here's the change that needs to be made. Now, after the commentary on how he's been teaching, this is now his subject material. Let me give you my list, and then Mike's going to give you a very different list, and then we'll get into the second coming and the resurrection of their loved ones. Here's my list of to-do. Verses 3 through 5 have to do with obeying the law of chastity. Apparently, that was a problem, and Paul is going to speak very powerfully about abstaining from fornication. It's in nine of his letters, so it's not like it's just once in a while. Like The bulk of his letters, this is part of his discussion, so it's clearly a problem. And knowing where he is, you know, Rome and Greece and kind of the free thinking of many people in those areas, you can see why it would be concerned. I mean, he's quite blunt here. Every one of you needs to know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lust. In the words of Elder Holland, deep within you is a fire that if it's not controlled, is going to burn you. If it's controlled, will be the very source of your greatest happiness. So you have to decide. Do I let the fire consume me because I don't bank it at every turn? Or do I use the fire, that power, that passion within me, within the bounds the Lord has set, and it becomes the source of my very happiness? There's number one. Number two on my list is verse six, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner. So honesty, honesty and integrity in my everyday dealings. Number three, verses nine and 10, brotherly love, love one another. And in the end of verse 10, increase more and more. We need to love better and more. And then in verses 11 and 12, he throws in four more. First, he says, verse 11, study to be quiet. Now, he's going to mention that phrase a couple times in his epistle. Study to be quiet. And I wonder if this is similar, what Amaron noticed of young Mormon. In Mormon chapter 1, when Mormon was just a kid, he's 10 years old, 
Amaron, who was in charge of the records, he was in charge of the plates. He came up to Mormon and said, I perceive thou art a sober child and art quick to observe. I think one of the defining characteristics of Mormon is that he was quick to observe in human behavior the lesson. That's why he was such a perfect editor of the Book of Mormon, is he was quick to observe. And I wonder if Paul is saying, study to be quiet might be a reference to learn to be quick to observe. Boyd Gay Packer years ago gave an entire talk about the unwritten order of things. Are you savvy enough to notice the unwritten order? Do you watch? Do you study to be quiet? Number five, back in verse 11, is to do our own business. Mike and I have talked a great deal over the years in this podcast about you take care of you. Part of the law of consecration, I believe, is the commitment that I will take care of what's my responsibility. I will not shift the burden of someone that I should take care of onto someone else. You do your own business, Paul says. Number six is what we've talked about. Work with your own hands. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty and cut and bruised in the labor of the day. Work hard and take care of yourself. And then verse 7, walk honestly. Those are seven messages that he's going to give in chapter 4. Now, Mike's got a little bit different list, and I love that we see this a little bit differently. I kind of see it starting off in the very first verse of the fourth chapter where he says, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. And to me, this is where he basically gets into, okay, here's what I'm really going to get down to business and talk about, okay, what, this is what we got to fix. And so the first topic is the law of chastity and how there are some issues going on in Paul's day. They're to abstain from fornication and to stay away from the desires of your lusts. That's verses three through five. And then he gets into the dead coming back when Jesus returns. That's in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Notice what he says. Verse 14, he says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So God's going to come back. Jesus is coming back to the earth with those that have slept or those that have passed. In Paul's estimation, those are the righteous. For we say unto you, this is verse 15, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That's the King James reading. I'm going to give you a different translation. For this we say to you in the word of the Lord, that we, the living ones, surviving until the parousia or the coming of the Lord will not precede those saints that are sleeping. That reads a little bit different than shall not prevent them which are asleep. What Paul's saying is that we are not going to precede those saints that are sleeping. 
you see in this passage, he's addressing a misconception amongst the early believers. Paul is seeking to clarify their understanding concerning the second coming, and he's emphasizing that when Jesus returns, he will be accompanied by the righteous who have passed from their mortal existence, those that are sleeping, those that are dead. Paul shares the teachings he received from Jesus himself. The text indicates that the saints, including Paul, anticipate being alive when Jesus returns, as it uses the inclusive pronoun hemes, which is we, talking about us, meaning Paul and his listeners. But we need to know this, that in the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph replaces we with they. That's in the footnote. Joseph changes that. This is important because it is implying that those who are alive at the time that Paul is writing this will witness the second coming. In the Joseph Smith translation, that is no longer the case. It says, they who are alive at the coming of the Lord. It's just one word, but that is an important distinction. Now, does, it, does that mean that Paul didn't have the expectation that he would be alive? I take the position that he did. But I also take the position that as a prophet who has seen Jesus, Paul is a human being and has had prophetic experiences, but he doesn't know all things. I'm okay with that. And I take the position that Paul clearly knew that the second coming was not going to be in his day, but he taught what is appropriate for any day in which we live. If you remember what Jesus said when he took his disciples out on Tuesday night of his final week out to the Mount of Olives, and they talked about the second coming, the point he made then was, watch and be ready. It is appropriate for any saint, no matter when you live, to assume that it's coming now, that the second coming is today, in my day. That is appropriate so that I watch and am ready. If I believe it's not going to be for many, many thousands of years or hundreds of years or even decades, I will procrastinate my preparation. I will put it off. But if I believe that the second coming is any day now, any moment now, then I will watch and be ready. So my position is, as I read Thessalonians, I believe Paul clearly knew that there was going to be a dark apostasy between his day and the days of the second coming. I think Paul clearly knew that the second coming was thousands of years away, not in their lifetime, but he taught appropriately that let's assume it's now. Let's assume it's us, that we are the people. Why not? Because then we're going to live prepared. And that's why I love how chapter 5 begins. He says, the Lord cometh, in verse 2, as a thief in the night. Now, brethren, we are not in darkness. We are, we are children of light, so let's not be those that it overcomes as a thief. In other words, let's not live procrastinating it, oh, it's not going to happen today. And then all of a sudden, the thief comes and robs us. And so in verse 6 of chapter 5, let us not sleep. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us... Now, see if this sounds familiar. See if you can connect this to what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, which we found in Joseph Smith Matthew. Watch and be sober. I think another way of saying that is watch and be ready. So the emphasis in chapter 5 tells me that Paul is saying, look, let's assume it's now. 
And I think every Latter-day Saint today, is Jesus going to come in 2023? Well, why not assume so? Why not live every day prepared? The parable the Savior gave is if you knew when the thief was coming, you'd be ready. So I read these statements, like back in chapter 1, where he says, wait for his son from heaven, or in chapter 2, where he says in verse 19, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Or even further, when he talks about verse 10, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. I like that. So I hear you saying, Bryce, hey, Paul thinks he's coming, but not in my day. And I'm kind of taking the approach, Paul saying, hey, he's probably coming in our day. You know, back to my, my list of things that Paul's getting to, the second coming and the dead coming back when Jesus comes is kind of a big deal. So if you go back to chapter 4, look what he says. Verse 16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them, the dead, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, if you've ever had a Christian come up to you and say, do you believe in the rapture? That's coming right out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. That phrase, caught up, is going to be translated in, in the Latin, and that's kind of where we get the word for rapture. So it goes from Greek of Paul, and then in Latin, the word for rapture is coming out of that Latin word. We put this stuff in the show notes for you that are interested. And that is the idea, that the people that are alive when Jesus comes will be taken up. They will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air and then descend with him first. Now, this was actually repeated by Moroni to the 17-year-old Joseph Smith. In Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, Moroni comes to 17-year-old Joseph and tells him and talks about this. And the phrase he uses is, for they that come shall burn them. And then we also read this in the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 95 and 96, where he says this, there shall be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And immediately after the curtain of heaven is unfolded, as a scroll is unfolded after it is rolled up, the face of the Lord shall be unveiled. And the saints that are upon the earth who are alive shall be quickened or made, made alive and caught up to meet him. So there's a couple passages there where we have other places in the standard works where that idea is taught. And I, I do see Paul's having that expectation in his life, but I also see what Bryce is saying. I think that all of us should live as if he's coming today. Why? Because we should be living our best life. If we're living our best life, everything's going to be okay. The other topics that he's going to talk about, back to my list, after the dead coming back when Jesus returns, is the timing of the coming. And that's going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-11. through 11. And then the rest of chapter 5 gets into the fourth and fifth topics, which is how they treat each other and how they should relate with Heavenly Father. So let's go through that list, starting in verse 11. Comfort yourselves, edify one another. Verse 12, know them which labor among you, and verse 13, esteem them very highly. In other words, know how to recognize a true servant of the Lord and hold them in the regard that we should. Verse 14, warn them that are unruly, 
comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient. Verse 15, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. And now we start that second list. How do we connect with God? How do we keep God in the place where we should? Verse 16, rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. And then I love verse 19, quench not the spirit. Now, that idea is you can quench your thirst, right? Drinking water quenches your thirst. You should never quench your thirst for the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, and then abstain from all appearance of evil. So some wonderful practical suggestion Paul is giving on living the gospel. I want to kind of complete that list back in verse 8 of chapter 5, where he says, put on, back to the idea which we saw last in our last podcast, put on. Put on the breastplate. Now, what is the breastplate? Now, we've talked about other breastplates. This time, he's going to use different wording. In one example, the breastplate was righteousness. Now, the breastplate that protects my heart is faith and love. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. And then put on the helmet, the hope of salvation. If I protect my thoughts by filling them with the hope of salvation, it will lead me in the direction I ought to go. That's a very practical list of how to be a better follower of Jesus in that first book of Thessalonians. Now, as we turn to the second epistle of Thessalonians, there's some controversy as to did Paul write this? Because now Paul very definitively is saying, no, 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 the second coming isn't going to happen in our day. And so there is some scholarship out there that would suggest that either Paul didn't write this or maybe Paul's been corrected and needs to correct his doctrine. And so he's writing again to the Thessalonians. But this is a very different approach to the second coming. For those of you that are interested in that argument, we put quite a bit in the show notes for you to look at. I appreciate the scholarship. I think it's good. And I'm really okay with whatever it is. If this is a second century text, I'm okay. If Paul wrote it, I'm okay. At the end of the day, I don't know. But what I think is important is to ask yourself, what is the message of Second Thessalonians? And if we talk about the message, I think we're on firmer ground. Sometimes the scholarship, as much as it's interesting to me, a lot of times we just don't have answers. Mike, I was just reading this incredible talk by Elder Neil A. Maxwell back in 1986, uh, The Book of Mormon, A Great Answer to the Great Question. He kind of addressed that where he says, we are looking beyond the mark, therefore, when figuratively speaking, we are more interested in the physical dimensions of the cross than what was achieved thereon by Jesus. Or when we neglect Alma's words on faith because we are too fascinated by the light-shielding hat reportedly used by Joseph Smith during some of the translating of the Book of Mormon. In other words, if we're so caught up in who said it and what was the circumstances that we miss what was said, we have looked beyond the mark. And every time I pick this stuff up, I want to know both. I, I want the theological message. I love the spirit I feel when I read it, but I can't help to 
get in the weeds and get into some of the complexities. And so for those of you that want to know the complexities and the scholarly arguments, we give the show notes. And why? (laughs) So the podcast isn't nine hours long. Uh, We want you to not fall asleep, especially if you're driving. So with that, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians and let's talk about the message of this letter. Now, I think one of the messages, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, is that for those who have been oppressed, those who have been put down, those who live in a government that has withheld freedom, the second coming is a day of reckoning in which we will be freed from tyranny. So hold out hope that the day of freedom is coming, the day of reckoning So Paul says in verse 7, to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with all his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this isn't a vindictive, yeah, they're going to get what they deserve and I'm going to have a front row seat in watching them burn. That's not a Christ-like attitude. But the attitude is, he's going to come and put everything right. And that's a day to look forward to. That no matter what happens on this earth, no matter what government might be in possession in your land, if they deny freedom, if they're doing things they shouldn't do, if I'm oppressed by those around me, the Savior is going to come and make everything right. I remind you that he says in the book of Revelation, Chapter 21, verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That is a day to be hoped for. That is a day to give us hope and strength to get through today, that Jesus is going to come and make everything right. But... Now, this is a very big capital letter, but I think we need to understand the warning Paul is making about what is going to happen. In chapter 2, I think we quote so often verse 3 that, hey, there's going to be an apostasy. It's almost as if we're using this to prove that there is a restoration, that there's going to be a falling away, therefore there has to be a restoration. And we love to use this to, to say, see, there is a restoration. And I think that's fine, but I think we miss the next message. I think this is the message to the Latter-day Saints. Now, this is grim and gloomy, but there is a call to arms message behind it that I think the Latter-day Saints need to hear. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letters as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first. Now that's usually where we stop. The second coming won't happen until there's an apostasy. Therefore, we need a restoration. But hold on, don't stop there. The second coming won't occur until the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. 
picking that up in verse 8, then shall that wicked be revealed. Notice that's a capital W in the King James. That's not a substance or a thing. That's a person. Then shall that wicked be revealed. Verse 9, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. He speaks in verse 11 of strong delusions that lead people to believe a lie. And believing not the truth in verse 12, they take pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, we need to understand as Latter-day Saints the mess we have been sent to clean up. Satan was given jurisdiction during the apostasy, and he ruled supreme. I read you the words of Joseph Smith in his letter from Liberty Jail. Joseph Smith talked about what happened during the apostasy. Starting in verse 7, section 123, verse 7, it is an imperative duty that we owe to God, to angels with whom we shall be brought to stand, and also ourselves to our wives and our children, who have been made to bow down with grief, sorrow, and care under the most damning hand of murder, tyranny, and oppression, supported and urged on and upheld by the influence of that spirit. That's what happened during the apostasy. That spirit was unleashed. And watch what it did. Which hath so strongly riveted the creeds of the fathers? All of those creeds that were written during the apostasy were riveted by that spirit, the spirit of Satan, the spirit of apostasy. He wove himself into the creeds of the fathers who have inherited lies. Now, do you see hear what Paul's talking about? Joseph Smith is saying the same thing, that because of the apostasy, because of that spirit, the fathers in their creeds and those who believed inherited lies upon the hearts of the children and filled the world with confusion and has been growing stronger and stronger. Now listen to what Joseph Smith says, and is now the very mainspring of all corruption. The spirit of the apostasy, the unveiling, as Paul talked about it, of the man of sin, the revealing of the wicked, that shall cause delusion that they should believe a lie. And because they believe not the truth, they will take pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, my dear sweet Latter-day Saints, that is what we are coming in to face and clean up. It has been laid upon the restoration that we bring light to that world where that spirit has so strongly riveted the creeds of the fathers that people have inherited lies. 
it is now the very mainspring of all corruption. Now, that's a sobering thought, but we have all tools. We have every tool necessary to fight that fight. I want to go back to what I skipped in verse 8. The wicked, capital W, wicked, will be revealed. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, we are the forerunners. We are the John the Baptist that have been sent before he comes to prepare the world. Now, we have the spirit of his mouth, and we have the brightness of his coming. Nephi gives a fascinating prophecy about how Satan will be bound in the latter days. Sometimes we think that God will come and God will bind Satan. However, Nephi gives a very, very different interpretation in the Book of Mormon. In 1 Nephi chapter 21, remember, Nephi saw the end. He saw how the world ends. And this idea that Jesus comes and binds Satan is only partially true. Nephi saw, 1 Nephi 22 verse 26, and because of the righteousness of his people, Satan has no power. Wherefore, he cannot be loosed for the space of many years, for he hath no power over the hearts of the people, for they dwell in righteousness, and the Holy One of Israel reigneth. In other words, perhaps what will cast Satan out isn't a physical force that grabs him and binds him, but the simple fact that we don't give him anywhere to live among us. And yet, Bryce, I also see this in Revelation 20, where John says, an angel came down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and he bound him a thousand years. And so we have the binding, but then we also have the righteousness of the saints. And so sometimes I read these passages and I say, what if it's both? And I think sometimes we can read First and Second Thessalonians that way. I'm open to the idea when it comes to the second coming and Paul's understanding, what if it's both? But I think that is the main message, is the idea of the second coming. It's Paul saying to the saints in Thessalonica, hold on, tie a knot in the rope and hold on because it's going to get rough. And saying to the saints in our day, the Latter-day Saints, who are forerunners before his second coming, who have inherited a mess and have to do a lot of cleaning up. You guys hang in there. You are doing a great work. I think he's saying it to the Thessalonians, and he's saying it to us. Those of us who have come to earth in this day to bring light to such a dark place, to fight against tradition and fight against blindness and fight against all those creeds that have riveted the hearts of fathers that have inherited lies. And it gets discouraging. And those of you who serve in the mission field and you get so discouraged by people and the rejection and they just don't see that the gospel has been restored again. They don't see the rod because of the mist of darkness that blinds their eyes. I think we need to hear Paul say in chapter 3, verse 13, but ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. The Lord will repeat that in the Doctrine and Covenants. When it gets hard 
and we're waiting for him to come and we're waiting for all the tears to be wiped. That day is coming. And let's assume it's today. Notice verse five of chapter three, patiently waiting for Christ. Let's assume it's today. Let's live as if it's today. But when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, let's be not weary in well-doing. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord will add, for you are laying the foundation of a great work. We are doing what God sent us to earth to do. And even though we're fighting against a lot of darkness, we have his help and we will succeed because he will succeed. Of that I stand as a witness. May we all be not weary in well-doing in the fight of our lives to prepare the world for his coming. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, as well as Philemon, the shortest letter in the New Testament. Now, before we leave, we just wanted to let you know about a video that we'll be dropping on our YouTube channel tomorrow. It will cover the same material that we just covered in this podcast, which is First and Second Thessalonians. But in this video, I'll be with my son and his wife. It will be more of an informal discussion as we talk about this text. So I hope you'll check it out. We will add a link here in the description. Once again, thanks for listening and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.